Okay, we're going to read Psalm 39, and here's some things to look out for. What are key themes in this psalm? What are key themes? What are key ideas? How would you characterize this psalm? What type of psalm is this? Um, is it a psalm of sadness? It is a psalm of joy. Uh, is it a psalm, as some people say, of disorientation? Or is it a psalm of reorientation, which is a general term to refer to praise psalms? And, of course, what does the psalm say about God? What does the psalm say about Jesus? We won't get into those last two uh, until we look at the text verse by verse, but we may deal with the others. What type of psalm? What are the themes in the psalm? But here is Psalm 39 from the New American Standard Bible. For the choir director for Judithan, a psalm of David, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere beast, Salah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they made an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. Do not open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me, because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Salah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry, and do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again, before I depart and am no more. Now, read verse 5. Verse 5 again. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is mere breath. Salah. Okay. Now, what is it? What did I say before this? Well, that is a statement from Psalm 49. That um, from there, because there is a statement like that in Psalm 49. But anyway, what, what, how you would you characterize that Psalm? What kind of Psalm is this? 
What is the mood of the psalmist? Somber. It's very somber. It is very somber. And I would describe this more as a psalm of, of lament. But, but one of the things that is interesting, that is untypical of this particular psalm, uh, about this particular psalm, is most of these psalms of individual lament, most of them will end on a note of praise. This one does not. It does not end on a note of praise at all. As a matter of fact, it will end quite differently, as we will see in a moment. But that is one of the things I wanted to stress. While it's a very somber mood, and while it is a psalm of lament more than any other type, it is not a psalm that ends as most psalms of lament do. Now, what themes did you pick out that really keep coming up? I thought of three largely with the help of some some one writer in particular who who called these together. But what themes did you come up with? Brevity of life. The brevity of life is one of them. And you see that theme stressed particularly in verses 4 through 6. The brevity of life. Also verses 11 and 12 will state that same theme. So yes, that's one of the three that seems to be very clear. What else do you see? Silence, yes. Silence is a big theme. You see that in verses 1 through 3. It comes back up again in verse 9. And it will come up in a slightly different way uh, in verse 12. So, silence and brevity of life. You've got two of the three. What would a third possible theme be here? I keep, well, there's self examination taking place by the psalmist. I don't think that's a theme. Yeah. Uh, in particular. Well, what he sees from that self-examination, though, may be because he ties this with sin and suffering. And you particularly see that in verses 8 to 11. He, He examines himself, like Bob is saying, he examines himself, he sees the sin, he relates his suffering to his sin. In verse 11, with reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. And so he does tie his sin with suffering. He talks about a plague that he's experiencing from from God's hand. In verse 10, remove your plague from me. So, um, th- those are those are things. Now, I just say this not to uh, minimize any other subject that comes up in this psalm, but I say this to maybe help you to get your arms around a few key ideas of it. Let's look at some of these words. 
Now, first of all, this psalm is a psalm it's connected with the name Judithan. Judithan. Um, excuse me, I didn't spell Judithan right. Judithan. Okay? Who is that? Do you know? Is he a priest? And he's mentioned in First Chronicles. Yes, he is mentioned in First Chronicles. He's a Levite, and he seems to be one of these Levites who served as a musician at David's temple. Some passages that mention him, he is mentioned in context of a genealogy, First Chronicles 9 and verse 16. Then when they are moving the ark to Jerusalem, in First Chronicles, and these are all these are all references from First Chronicles. First Chronicles sixteen verse thirty eight. First Chronicles sixteen verse forty one. Uh, they are uh, associated there. Also in twenty five of Chronicles in verses one through three. Who are a couple of other families of musicians? Now, I just mentioned this because we're going to see their names in Psalms as well. We see Judithan, who else? Asaph. Asaph is mentioned there in First uh, Chronicles 25. Who else? Do you remember another family? Another group? Heman? These are other musicians who are associated with... Uh, the time of of David, and they are mentioned in this particular. Uh, t- they are mentioned in other psalms, but uh, Jonathan also appears in Second Chronicles, Second um, Chronicles thirty five and verse fifteen. Second Chronicles thirty five verse fifteen, and that is something from the time of King Josiah. Now, Jonathan appears in Psalm 62, Psalm 77. That, that, that name also appears in the titles to those Psalms. Okay? So there are a few things about the heading. I want to tell you one of the things that strikes me, and we'll just let this unfold as we go throughout the psalm. This psalm in some ways reminds me, if I were just to read these words without knowing where I was in the Bible, without knowing this is a Tuesday night psalms class, I might say this is Job or this is Ecclesiastes. Because it sounds a lot like those books and this first verse will even sound a lot like Proverbs. It says, I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. Now, the book of Proverbs has much instruction about our tongue and about guarding our tongue. In Psalm 16, verse 17, He who watches his way 
preserves his life. That's Proverbs 16 and verse 17. And so here, he's going to guard his mouth. He's going to guard it like a muzzle. Now, I'll tell you what I find interesting that makes a good footnote or cross-reference to Psalm 39 verse 1 is Psalm 141 verse 3. Psalm 141 verse 3, set a guard, same word, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the doors, uh, the door of my lips. There he's asking God, keep watch over my mouth. It is both something we do and it is something we ask God to do. And when the final product, if we're able to control our tongue and able to control our mouth, then that's God, to God be the glory. But He's going to guard His mouth as with a muzzle. Now, we know He was suffering in the psalm. We know that. Why is he guarding his mouth so diligently? Maybe he is guarding his mouth so diligently because he doesn't want to speak falsely about God. He doesn't want to speak in a way to encourage unbelief among others or to speak in a way that may come across bitter as God to God. Remember, the Bible tells us that after Job experienced all of his loss, in Job 1 and verse 22, he, he, the Bible says, In all this Job did not sin nor curse God with his mouth. Same kind of statement is made in Job 2.10. Job 1.22, Job 2 verse 10. There is a temptation in the midst of suffering to say something we shouldn't and to betray confidence. Another passage that says that same thing, same type of thing, is Psalm 73. I know you'll love that psalm when we get there. If you don't know it already, the Bible says, if I had said I will speak thus, if he had aired all of his doubts, he would have betrayed the generation of your children. He restrained some things he may want to say. It may be tempted to say not to disturb the faith of others. What was the two from Job again? Job one twenty two, Job one twenty two, and Job two ten. Job one twenty two two ten, and also Psalm seventy three fifteen. Thank you. Seventy three fifteen. Never hesitate to ask about a scripture because that's what's going to stick with you uh, after other words from the class are forgotten. Look those passages up and compare them and, and I think you'll be benefited by that. But he's going to guard his mouth. He's going to guard his mouth like a muzzle. Particularly, verse 1 says, while the wicked are before him. And he states in verse 2, I was mute and silent. And I even refrained from good. And I take it that he is refraining from speaking good. He, he doesn't want to say anything 
in danger that he may say something that he shouldn't. Now, there are quite a few connections between Psalm 39 and Psalm 38. And we won't stop and call attention to all of them. But look back at Psalm 38. 38 verses 13 and 14. And notice the connection here to 39. But I, like a deaf man do not hear, and I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no arguments. He is like a mute man, he stays. And here, in 39 verse 2, he says, I was mute and silent. He was doing his best to restrain his words. Doing his best to restrain it. But it doesn't make his trouble disappear. Because while he holds his tongue, the storm within him is brewing. And he says, my sorrow grew stronger. And he says in verse 3, my heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. Now, Let's look at this. This is a reference to Psalm 39.3. My heart, he says, my heart was hot within me. Now that particular word for hot is not used often. But let me tell you one of the references. And again, looking at this in context makes all of the difference. This word is used in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 6. The context is that someone's near relative has killed another. Someone has killed someone's near relative and the near relative, his anger is burning and he is pursuing the person who has done it. That's the context. That tells us a little bit about the idea here. The same kind of anger that a person might have at a near relative being killed. He says, my heart was hot within me. It took everything he could to restrain his words. Because his heart is boiling up and burning and... He, he finds it very difficult to contain those words. Now, but he also says, I spoke with my tongue. Verse 3, another verse you can put down beside verse 3. This is, this is not so much this phrase, but the whole verse. is Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 9. And in Jeremiah 20, verses 7-9, through 9, Jeremiah talked about how he was going to be silent. But when he could not, when he <clears throat> tried to be silent, that there was a fire that burned within him and he could not keep it contained. And um, I apologize, but could you go get me some water? Um... <clears throat> Here, it is a different... Here, in Jeremiah 20, the context is a little different. There, God is speaking to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah just doesn't want to speak anymore because every time he does speak, 
he is overwhelmed with persecution and opposition. And he said, but finally he, he, he can't keep it quiet anymore. And, and the psalmist is that way here. It's not that he's going to speak a good thing. He doesn't want to speak a bad thing. And um, But when he does pray, as one writer said, I don't know if he never spoke those words that he feared he would speak. Um, because... If he did finally say everything he was thinking he was going to say in Psalm, in this Psalm, in these verses, there's nothing here that we would say is beyond the pale of what should be spoken. I didn't, I didn't word that well. But I hope you get the idea. The idea is the words that are in the Psalm, we wouldn't think, oh, these are things you just shouldn't say. We wouldn't think that. So I don't know if he restrained his words and didn't speak that or, or what. But verses 4 through 6 are going to particularly highlight the brevity of life. We have seen, first of all, three of the verses that deal with this theme of silence. But this theme of brevity here in verses 4 through six. Lord, make me to know my end, and to what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Let me know how transient. Uh, Jason, will you just read verses four through six again? Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is mere breath. Salah. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will and does not know who will gather them. Okay. Did you mean to read breath at the end of verse 5 or beast? No. <laughs> okay. But thank you very much. But let me know my end. Let me know how transient I am. Do you ever forget what a short time we're living here? I think COVID has brought this verse on like okay. time in my life. Okay. Okay. Um, that's a that's Not an interesting point. But you know, young people, healthy people, yeah, gone. Yeah, that's right. It has it has taken uh, taken many, and um, but you're right. Maybe and maybe that is a blessing of it. Um, let me say this without getting off on the subject, okay? With an observation. September 11th, 2001, 21 years ago, when that event took place, 
people retreated to churches to pray is the only time I can remember the news running a scroll of all these churches that were having special prayer services that night. Did we respond to the virus the same way? It didn't seem like it to me. And and maybe all these things that remind us of how fragile we are, we should make sure we're telling people in the midst of darkness <coughs> there's light. In the midst of this suffering and panic and transient, we are pointing to something <coughs> eternal. Make me know my end. Now, there are particularly a couple of things in verse 5. Notice that a lot of the lines in Psalm 39 have three lines. And there are a couple of things, two or three things in Psalm 39.5 I particularly want to call attention to. Because there are about three lines here. First of all, he uses the term in 39.5, the term... Hand breath. Hand breath. Now, that term hand breath it is in Jeremiah 52, Jeremiah 52, verse 21. 52, verse 21 is giving measurements. And it says, As for the pillar, the height of each pillar was 18 cubits. It was 12 cubits in circumference and four fingers, four fingers in thickness. That's Jeremiah 52 verse 21. And one of the things that's interesting is sometimes that term that term is used when they're building the temple and talks about uh, it being a handbreadth, and the other passage says it's four fingers. So this was one of the shortest measurements the Israelite people had was a handbreadth. And they measured for their fingers. And they even measured objects by this. And he says, you have made my days as a handbreadth. He picks out one of the smallest measurements that is known to this people. And he uses that as an illustration of the length of our life. I know if you're young, when you hear it said that somebody is 80 years old, that to you, that sounds like an eternity. I know it does. And I know it did to me. And then one day you're going to wake up and you're going to all of a sudden realize you're getting closer to that every day and you haven't been alive that long. You haven't been around. It goes so fast. Your days, you've made my days like a handbreadth. My lifetime is as nothing. Now, that word nothing, I don't think is used here to indicate that life doesn't have purpose, that life doesn't have value. It is talking about life's brevity. 
Just like the phrase before it, just like the phrase after it. You have made my days a handbreadth. My lifetime in your sight is as nothing. It's as nothing. And then surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Salah. Now, this word breath, it will be used again in verse 11. Breath. It is also the same Hebrew word is used in verse 6. In verse 6, it is translated nothing. In each case, all three instances, it is from the same Hebrew word. The same Hebrew word. Hevel. Does that name ring a bell with you? This is the word of the book of Ecclesiastes that occurs about 30 times. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Meaninglessness of meaninglessness. All is meaningless. It is that word that appears some 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is used here to emphasize the brevity of life. Surely every man at his best is mere breath. And that same line ends verse 11. Surely every Every man is a mere breath. And by the way, this particular Hebrew word is also very close to the name of a character in the Bible. Abel. Abel, who's killed apparently at a very young age by his brother. It's vanity. It's vapor. It's, you get your hands on it only for it to sneak through your fingers. All of these ways to speak of the brevity of life. Eternity awaits each of us. And we don't have very long to figure out what life is all about. We don't have very long to figure it out. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Life is short. It's a hand breath. It is as nothing. It is a breath. And every man walks about as a phantom. He walks about as a phantom. Now, this particular word, phantom, it's, it's difficult to tell how that word should be translated. How is that, how is that translated in your versions? There's it always translated phantom? Shadow. Shadow. Image. Shadow image. It is the same word. It is the same word used in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. When the Bible talks about God made man in His image. He made him in His image. In the image of God, He made man. It is that same word. And so, a shadow is a term that's used 
here uh, used in some of the translations. Um, Mary, what did you say your translation was? Shadow. It was, okay, same thing. So it's shadow um, and phantom. Um, some, what does it mean? Does this indicate that in spite of the brevity of our life, that our lives have purpose because we're in the image of God? Is that is that what's being said? Or is this another way to highlight how brief, how passing, how how transient our life is? That every man is like a phantom. It's just like, it's almost as one writer stated it here uh, on a Psalm on Psalm thirty nine. Humans are not the real thing, but only an empty copy of themselves. That it's a way to speak. It, to me, it's probable that that what this is being said is a continuation of what was said in the verse before. That it's a way to speak of the brevity of life. Um, because he goes on, surely they make an uproar for nothing. He make, he amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. <clears throat> what book does that sound like? Proverbs. What was that? Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Particularly I'm thinking about, there may be Proverbs too, but, but Ecclesiastes is a specific passage is there's Ecclesiastes 2 uh, verses 18 through 23 makes this same exact point. That you gather up your money and you gather your riches and you leave it behind and a person you leave it behind for may be a fool. I... I probably told you the story before and, and probably will tell it again. Of um Joey Curry said that one time he was preaching and he said he was very young, he was preaching in Chicago and he said, In those days, even rich people in hospitals did not get their own room. You often had two patients in a room. And he said he was there and he says and I, I, he did not call the person's name. He said, if I called the person's name, he said, you would know the name. And he says, I am in this room visiting a Christian on one side of the room, and he is dying on the other. And he said, the reason you would know his name is because of how wealthy he is, how rich he was. And he says, while I'm there visiting this Christian's, all these attendants have to be called in because his two sons get in a fist fight over who's going to get what when he dies. You collect all your money and who knows but that the person who inherits it is a fool. And that only increases this sense of emptiness, this sense of vanity, and this question, what's it all for? What's all the point of it? What's the point? When you look at the brevity of life, something I think that was very important to Hebrew people, what comes right in the middle, 
what comes right in the middle in verse 7. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. He recognizes that His hope is God. Life is brief. Life is a vapor. Where can He place His hope? Where can He place His confidence except in God? And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. If the most important thing is God and a relationship with God, the number one thing that interferes with that relationship is sin. And he says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. In verse 9, I have become mute. Do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Now, that you in verse 9 is emphatic. There is a separate personal pronoun. It's almost like saying, you you have done it. It's a separate personal pronoun plus a second person masculine singular verb. God's done this. God has done this. Let me keep my mouth quiet. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth. It is you who have done it. Do you remember? I love this passage. When Samuel announces to Eli the punishment that's going to come on his house. And I know that was difficult for Samuel. But Eli says, It is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his sight. What can I say? It is God who has done it. And that's the same kind of attitude here. I have become mute. Do not open my mouth. It is you who have done it. He begs him, remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Salah. So with reproofs you chasten a man. You chasten a man for iniquity. So... Is there a, do you see a connection here between him not saying these things to these people, but instead talking to God? Yes, yes. I, I, th- I think when he comes time that he has to speak in verse 3, that he speaks to the Lord. He, he, he tries to muzzle his mouth, particularly in the presence of the wicked, he says in verse 1. But when he does speak, he speaks to God. And yes, I meant to point that out earlier and did not do it but that is a very good point because he is taking his problem to God instead of pouring out his complaints to others so yes that is a very important point and thank you thank you for saying that now my guess is and this is just a guess that when you think of creatures who terrify you, 
You might think of a um, a bear. You may think of a lion, often used in the Bible's pictures of judgment. I know that a few years ago, this is quite a few years ago in Australia, they were asked what word was the most terrifying word to them, and it was the word shark. Now we can understand that though. Shark, bear, lion, but probably not at the top of that list is a mom. That's just my guess. But... Just haven't met a lot of people uh, who told me how terrified they were of moths. But I want you to notice how often moths are mentioned as agents of judgment in the Bible. In Job 13, in verse 28... In Isaiah 50, in verse 9, Isaiah 51, in verse 8, Hosea chapter uh, 5, and verse 12, and James chapter 5, and verse 2. Your garments are moth-eaten. One of the things that moths particularly did is they ate clothing which was a sign of wealth, was a sign of blessing. And so here, the moth is pictured. Your moth, you consume as a moth what is precious to him. Now, Jesus talks about to have treasures that are moth-proof. In Matthew twenty, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth uh, where thieves do not break in and steal, and a moth does not destroy. We need to have moth-proof treasures. But here, God is pictured as the moth who consumes everything that is precious to a man. Surely, every man is a mere breath. Selah. But I want you to I want you to catch what he says in verse twelve. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent in my tears. I think that is so powerful contextually. We have seen this theme of silence and how he keeps his mouth quiet. He puts a muzzle on his mouth. He does not open his mouth. He is like a mute man and does not open his mouth. And God has brought this judgment. What can he say? But he begs God, do not be silent. He has been silent in many respects. But he begs God, don't be silent. We can sometimes be silent in the hopes that he will speak. And so hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. And he comes back to this theme of the brevity of life. He came in verse 11 when he said again, every man is a mere breath. But in verse 12, he uses the term, I am a stranger with you and a sojourner like your father's. So he describes himself as a stranger, as a sojourner here. Now these particular terms, they're used frequently in the Old Testament, but the idea is a pilgrim who has no 
permanent home. Um, in First Chronicles twenty nine verse fifteen, David said this. First Chronicles twenty nine verse fifteen: We are sojourners before you, and tenants as our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. In Leviticus 25, in verse 23, when the Bible was talking about the people's inheritance in the land, you are aliens and sojourners with me. We sing a song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up. Somewhere beyond the blue. And both of these passages indicate this idea. We're strangers. We're pilgrims. The Bible says this about Abraham and his family. In Hebrews 11, in verse 13. You see it in 1 Peter 2, in verse 21. As strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against your soul. And so, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. Lord, speak on my behalf. And the brevity of life is hit upon again. I am a stranger with you. I am a sojourner like all my fathers. But this is where we are surprised. Turn your gaze away from me. That I may smile again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. Now, we've seen that idea in the Psalms. Where does that originally appear? Some of you, I hope, know this. Where does it originally appear? Number six. Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The priest pronounced that blessing when they came out to the people. The Lord's face was the source of all blessings and all good things. But He says, turn your gaze away from Me. Turn your gaze away. That's a strange request, isn't it? You see Job doing this sometimes. Look at Job. A couple of passages in Job. Look at Job 7. Job 7 in verse 19. Job 7 verse 19. Will you never turn your gaze away from me? Nor let me alone that I may swallow my spittle. Are you never going to turn your gaze away? In the next verse, in verse 20, Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? He is using that phrase, watcher of men, to refer to God, not as a good thing, but as a negative thing. God is watching over us, never turning our gaze, His gaze from us, not leaving us alone for a moment. Same idea in Job chapter 10, in verse 20. Would he not let my few days alone withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer? Same kind of idea as Psalm 39 verse 13. Withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer. He's begging God, withdraw your presence, hide your eyes 
so that I may have some reason to smile. And one more, Job 14, verse 6. Job 14, verse 6. Turn your gaze from me, that, he, that he, turn your gaze from man, from him, that he may rest until he fulfills his days like a hired man. That's why I said at the beginning, there are things in this book that remind me, in this psalm that remind me of Ecclesiastes. We saw that word for breath. We also saw the idea of having no one with whom to leave an inheritance. And there are things in this psalm that sound like Job. Turn your gaze away. Not many people in the Bible speak in that way. And sometimes God has enough sin not to answer our prayer. The disciples have been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. Jesus says, put your net out into the deep water. Peter says, Lord, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. Nevertheless, I'll let down my net. He obeys when he doesn't understand. They catch so many fish that the net begins to break. And Peter recognizes what has happened. He says, depart from me, O Lord. For I am a sinful man. Depart from me. Turn your gaze away. Depart from me. He said, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Sometimes God is wise not to answer because we don't want what we're asking for. But I will say this too. The fact that God lets these words stand in Scripture is a statement that we can pour out our honest complaints to Him. God lets this psalm end this way. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am nothing. I am no more. And by the way, that word, I am no more, is the same basic root word translated nothing in verse 5. In verse 5, my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. I'm no more. Now, what does the psalm teach about God? I think the key idea is in verse 7. Where God is our source of hope. God is the one on whom we wait. God is the one in whom we hope. That is a key idea. But what, what, do you have any other questions right there on this song? Anything you can shout it out if you do. Because I can't see your hand. Okay. How can we say that Jesus answers Psalm 39? How does Jesus answer these cries of Psalm 39? Was in verse 8, he asked, Glory me from our transgression. Jesus gives us that way to get rid of our transgressions. Okay, very good, very good. 
several things. We'll, we'll, we'll put these categories. Jesus experiences the suffering. These are these are these are familiar categories. Experiences the same suffering as Psalm thirty nine. As the writer of Psalm thirty nine, and also Jesus solves the problems raised by Psalm thirty nine, and that was the point just made. Very good point. That in verse eight, as the writer pleads and he says, "Deliver me from my transgressions. Make me know the reproach of the fool. Make me not know the reproach of the foolish. Deliver me from my transgression." So, just like we said about Psalm thirty-eight, where the writer confessed his sin at several points. Here, Jesus is able to deal with the problem of sin that is brought up. Very good. Very good thought. How does Jesus, before we go on with this idea, how does Jesus experience the sufferings, the same sufferings the writer of Psalm 39 does? The, the picture comes to mind of Jesus before his accusers and being silent. Yeah. Uh, that silence was such a big theme in verses 1 through 3. Uh, and that is exactly what Jesus did. And we talked about uh, that last time that he is silent and does not answer. Um, and Pilate says, Do you not hear what they are saying about you in 11 through 14? And yes, go ahead. Uh, he, I mean, we believe he's only 30 years of age when he's put on the cross. He experienced how fleeting life really was. Good point. Good point. That that he he does experience the brevity of life. Um, so those words of verses five through seven, or verses, excuse me, those words of verses four through six truly find a fulfillment in him that's a that's a very good point i hadn't thought of that as much that way and not only that but remember when jesus is going to the garden he said that he told peter and james and john that that he was distressed let's say the words in matthew 26 matthew 26 verse 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The verse before says that he was grieved and distressed. So the silence um, that is mentioned here, but, but also the silence leads to grief and Jesus experienced that same kind of of, of grief, excuse me, it's Matthew 26, 37, and 38. But I would say, too, that Jesus answers this by resurrection. That He answers the brevity of life by the fact that He is 
the resurrection and the life. In John 11, in verse 25. He is the way, the truth, and the life. As John 14, verse 6 says, the way, the truth, the life. He is all of that. He is... His resurrection answers the way this psalm ends. As he said, turn your gaze away from me before I depart and am no more. And we know through Jesus that we never reach that point where we depart and are no more. That, that, that there we will ever be with the Lord. As the Bible says in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. We will ever be with the Lord. This mortal will take off this mortality and put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15. That through the resurrection, Jesus is an answer to these things. And therefore, we have riches and we have treasures that no thief can break in and destroy. No thief, uh, no moth can consume. We have treasures that are greater than anything that man or creature God has made could take away. Jesus answers Psalm 39. What else? Anything? You see in this too, Jesus suffering the wrath of God for Well, that's a good point. You can say that statement in verse 9. I have become mute and... Do and do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Ultimately, it is God who brings the cross upon him. The, the, the cup the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? It's Matthew 26, I think, verse 54. Uh, no, it's... Um, Hmm. Um, that's how will the scripture be fulfilled the cup the father has given me to drink shall not drink is it John 12 verse 27 uh, John 18 verse 10 I'm like, well, we're going to go through the whole Bible before it's over and we're going to find out where that statement is <clears throat> um John 18, verse 11. That's where it is. It's John 18, verse 11. The cup the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? But he talks about the cup the Father has given him to drink. But read this through the eyes of the original author and read this through the eyes of Jesus how he answers all these cries. What else? Um, is there any connection with the two on the road to Emmaus whose heart burned within them? Uh, I don't know exactly what necessarily to make of that, but you see that. It may be, you know, it's, uh, their heart is burning, wanting to tell under, their understanding and uh, they, they can't wait to get around someone and tell it. So they're wanting to tell the good news of what has happened. So, oh yeah, I mean, that's that's a that's a good observation. Luke is that Luke twenty four thirty two. Hearts burn within us. 
that he's relating to Micah's relating to verse three. Very good thought. Very good thought. I think we brought up a week ago about uh, Christ's statement, uh, "My God, why have you forsaken me?" And in, in my mind, verses seven through eleven here answers that. Mm-hmm. Christ carrying the burden of our sin and our transgressions. It's because that He was delivered up for our transgressions that we can be delivered from our transgressions. Yes. But it's it's a powerful psalm, as they all are. It is a little bit more difficult in some ways to outline, but I do think these themes were helpful to me in seeing you know, what comes up. But let's pray. O oh Lord our God, we read the prayers of those who have suffered and those who have hurt and those who have walked this veil of tears before us. You inform us. You instruct us by their words and help us to understand both them and more importantly, you and how you are our hope. And we must wait upon you in all situations. You are our help, our hope, our salvation, and our shield. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus experienced all this pain All the pain that the writers of the Bible pour out so that we might be saved, that we might be rescued from death. Thank you, O God, for your abundant grace and mercy. Thank you that we see a better ending to life than is stated to Psalm 39.13. Thank you. And it's only because it's all. We only have that hope because of you and your mercy. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, Jason, are you trying to tempt that song? Or? I am not. You are not? Are you trying to? I'll try it. Bob is going to try a song and he doesn't know. And uh, so this is a song he doesn't know maybe not the song that never ends but it's a song he doesn't know and no i know this song oh, after i got to thinking about it okay. yeah i know the song <laughs> i have trouble sitting out there and following brad when he does an excellent job leading him so you can kind of imagine how this is going to go actually there's two songs there's one on each side my grandson said, "Yeah, problem using Jesus loves me, he'll eat it." <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I may, I may uh, forfeit the pulpit up here. This is okay. This is to cover cover the first. Do we shut this off, Tommy? I have nothing you can if you want to. I, I would just love to shut this off. <laughs> Goodbye, you all. Yeah.